0: All right. So you ready to go? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We're so grateful, so grateful that we can come here together. Talk about you. Talk about your word, Lord. We're gonna, but as always, we are just so dependent on, on your Holy Spirit to give us insight, Lord. If you, You're the creator of all things. You spoke creation into existence, and we know you have access to all knowledge all dominion all authority and yet we are little created beings down here running around as if we own the place and we're asking you to speak to our created minds and lord you are recreating us in your image, and we thank you in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Okay, so um, we've been talking about, uh, we've been going through Ephesians. This this message was actually prepared three weeks ago, and as I told First Service, I'm actually really happy that I didn't share this three weeks ago because I've been able to just sit around and kind of think about it and think about it more deeply. and. And uh, I think I've got some, maybe a few additional thoughts that I want to share with you this morning. As you know, for those of you who know, we are now back finally after a couple of week hiatus with Jamie, which was no hiatus. You were Many of you were dramatically impacted. I continue to get, I mean, we have seen thousands of people uh, being viewing this uh, uh, when Jamie spoke. It's been really powerful. And we will have, I was in conversation with him yesterday, we will have them back and there's, there's, they've got more to share that I think will really impact our church. So, um, having said that, we're going to now return and go back to our study of Ephesians. But before we do, if you don't, if you have your Bible, turn to John chapter thirteen. We're going to lay a little foundation, and then we'll look at our uh, our next verse uh, verses in Ephesians chapter four. John thirteen. This is Jesus speaking. Many of you will kind of know this well, but I'm going to kind of t- get a different maybe a different perspective on this this morning. A new commandment I give to you, Jesus said, that you love one another. Okay, so even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have a love for one another. Now, what I want to particularly provoke in terms of your thinking this morning is simply this. How did Jesus love us? How did he love the disciples? Because he's speaking specifically to those 12. He's saying, as I have loved you, you go out and love. How did he love them? Well, he loved them in many ways. Obviously, he went to the cross for his disciples and the rest of the world. We know that. He served them in many ways. But here's a primary way in which he loved them. He spoke to them words. He used his words to love his disciples. Now, as we'll see... Towards the end of this morning, he used them both at times. They were harsh. I mean, oh, you of little faith. That's kind of hard. That doesn't seem very encouraging. It was the most loving thing he could have possibly told them at that moment. But most often, they were words of encouragement. If you think about Jesus, sometimes you get those old, you know, Jesus movies, you know, that maybe you saw when you were a kid and he's got... Somehow he looks like a Norwegian, you know, he's got blue eyes and, you know, he's this tall guy and he has really long hair. And when he walks, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't walk with a stride. He kind of he kind of floats through the air, you know, and occasionally he would turn his gaze onto you and you ah! You know, it's kind of, that 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 wasn't who Jesus was. Jesus was a normal, the Bible says, without any majesty. Uh, Isaiah had seen 700 years in advance that he wasn't, we were going to look at him and go, oh my gosh, what a good looking, handsome character. Not like Saul that we talked about last week. Jesus was a normal looking Jewish man. It was God taking the form of a normal looking Jewish man. How did he, how did he love? Well, he loved through his words. And I want just now to go to Ephesians chapter four. And let's where's Paul going with this? Now, is for those of you who are new to the study, first three chapters, and we've taken a while to go through here. I mean, we really could break this down virtually every word every week. We could talk about a particular word. I'm trying to push us through so we can get a, still maintain a comprehensive view of the letter to the Ephesians. First three chapters were just this edifice to the theological edifice, it was extraordinary. And then as we've entered into four and we'll see five and six, it's really that, okay, how do we walk this thing out? What does this community look like? What does this kingdom look like? So orthodoxy in the first three chapters, orthopraxy, how do we practice this thing? And we're going to see a powerful, powerful, how do I want to put this? This is probably as significant a thing as you will learn in terms of your sanctification is the sanctification of our words. So let's read, Ephesians 4 verse 29, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. All right, we can go home. (laughs) I mean, seriously, think about that. Let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth. Well, we're going to talk about what unwholesome means. But only such a word that is good for edification. What does that mean? Sounds like an archaic word. According to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. We talked about that in Ephesians chapter 1, right? We're sealed in the Holy Spirit. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another. Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted, forgiving each other. Just as God in Christ also... Oh, yeah, that is the gospel forgave you. So forgive each other just like God's forgiven us. Okay, so let's go back for a second, and I want to talk first about this word edification. What in the world does that mean? Well, in the Greek, this actually has the, denotes architecture, like a structure, like building, a constructing something. So when it says, only is such a word that is good for edification... How do you edify? What are you? Now, I want you to think deeply about your words this morning. How do you edify somebody? Well, you're actually building into them, number one, part of their own identity, especially as children. Would you agree? I mean, with our kids, especially when they're young. As they, get, as they get into the teenage years, they begin to, unfortunately, begin to grab hold of identities that are outside of even family, and the culture tends to press in and, and try to formulate a picture, and they give words and, and words to this with our kids. But how do we actually do that? This edification, I want us to think, how do we construct? Can, do my words actually construct something? Now, you have to understand. Let's ask the question, why is the Holy Spirit in the world? Well, Jesus answered that definitively in John 14. He says, I'm sending the Holy Spirit in, and he's going to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Well, we know that, but what is he actually doing? It's the spirit of Jesus, and we know from Revelation that Jesus is making all things new, reconstructing those things that have been deconstructed both in the fall in general and then in life. And life comes at you, as the, as the insurance commercial says, life comes at you fast, just does. So the Holy Spirit's operation is to renew all things, make all things new, and that means me. Every day, make me new. Make me a better father, make me a better husband, make me a better neighbor, make me a better employer, employee. What make me, Lord, into the image of who he is? and when we use our words carelessly when we're not using unho- when we're using unwholesome words that do not construct we're working in direct opposition To the very purposes of the Holy Spirit and I think that's why Paul is saying don't grieve the Holy Spirit it's not just the Holy Spirit's up there and he's mad at you today no you're grieving him in the sense that the work he's doing in the earth you're actually dead set in opposition to when you're using unwholesome words careless words as we'll see you know words if you think about it when we talked a couple of weeks ago we talked about the theology of work And when we talked about the theology of work, we talked about we're created in God's image, Imago Dei, and we are actually co-creators. Let me ask you a question. How did God create all things? He spoke it into existence, and God spoke it, and let God, he said it, you know, in the beginning, let there be light. He spoke it into existence. Now he's saying you have the same power in your words as co-creators. We are co-creators. We've been created so much in His image that we have the same. We'll never create something out of nothing. We're not the creator, but we are co-creators now, and we can construct in others very powerful identities in who they are and also give them great encouragement and also bring correction when necessary. Our words carry great weight. I think most of us would agree. Now, when we talk about unwholesome, the word there in the Greek is sapros, sapros, and what this denotes is it denotes something that's actually rotten to the core. It's putrefied. If you go into the Strong's there, that sapros is actually something that's putrefied, it's It's worthless, it's just not worth eating at all. Now, this uh, should immediately take us back to Matthew chapter seven, where Jesus was very definitive. Listen to his language, so every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad, the sapros, the putrefied, the unwholesome, the worthless tree bears sapros fruit, rotten fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, but a bad tree can't produce what? Good fruit. Okay, so we know that it's that language that emerges, that it's the heart and the mouth connection. We've talked about it at length in here at various points. Matthew chapter 12, he says something similar. Listen to the words of Jesus, Matthew 12, 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad, sapros, worthless, and its fruit putrefied, if you will, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, he was talking about the religious. He said, how can you being evil speak what is good even though they set themselves up as the paradigm of goodness and wholesomeness? He said, you're not. Out of the mouth speaks that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. Now catch the next word here. But I tell you, every careless, mark that word, careless word that people speak They're going to give an accounting on the day of judgment for by your words you'll be justified and by your words will you be, what, condemned. It is what flows out of our heart that comes out of our mouth and if it's putrefied then we have a heart issue. Now, the question is can you be a follower of Jesus now justified and made right with God because you believe into him and still have a heart that's not sanctified. Well, the answer to that would be yes, certainly in the early stages, but if you're not seeing progression in what comes out of your mouth over time, chances are you're not walking closely enough with Jesus. You're not in the word, you're not you may be on the periphery. You look, our word should change over time. Why? Cuz we become we become so conscious, not conscious of their power, of their power, but also what? A desire to to Build up and construct in the lives of others a life that both glorifies God and brings unbelievable fruit in their life. Do you want to see fruitful lives around you? I'll tell you, the atmosphere around you changes when you learn to change the way you use your words. Or you can use them carelessly. Carelessly. You know, I did a study on that this uh, last few weeks, and that word, it I felt like I, I had never seen this in Scripture. It felt like I was able to unpack something that I had never seen nor heard taught about. That word careless just means, ar- it's argos in the Greek, and what it means, now catch this, it's unemployed. It's like it's lazy, it's free from labor, leisure, it's uh, shunning labor one should perform. I mean, that's Strong's definition of argos. So when it says don't use careless words, it's like don't use, catch this, unemployed words. Are you employing your words? When you're employing somebody, you're using them and sending them to go to work. That's what employment is. Are you, do you see your words as being employed or are they unemployed words? Are they careless words? You know, we see that all the time, especially in small children. Can we not see that? I mean, you can change the disposition of a child one way or the other. Now, as you get older, you can... But it still has that effect even on people who've been on this earth for a long time. Words have power. But especially when you don't have any grid and your only optics for life as a child are through your parents' words. You know, you can see a child change in a moment. Young children think they don't have anything and just a, just a wise parent. Watch Eddie Murphy as he, watch Eddie Murphy talk to his daughter in this.
1: Oh, wait, 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 don't no. hog the picture now. How are you gonna hog the picture? Right, the picture's not right unless daddy's in the picture. <laughs> That's magic. Come on, it's late. Okay, come on. Daddy? I'm scared about the fall sing on Saturday. What are you afraid of? Your mother told me you were excited about it. Well, everybody has a solo, and mine is on the last song. And I started. So if I mess up, the whole entire song is wrecked. What well, makes you think you're going to mess up. I can't sing. What do you mean you can't sing? I can't. Yes, you can. Where's the song you're going to sing? Let me see. I'll put it to the right page. What's all you need This page. All right. All you need is love. I'll catch a good one. It's the Beatles. Tell you what. Here's what you do. Come over here. I'm gonna get you on stage here. This is the stage, now. No, no, you're half. gonna get on stage, and I'm gonna be in the audience. It's gonna be just like you're at the play. So I'm all the people in the audience. I came to see the show. We all like. Ooh, this is great. Well, I can't wait to see the show. Who's in this show? Ooh, who's that? I wonder if she can say. All right, I gotta get ready now. So you gotta get ready because everybody's watching. Everybody's watching. Now you gotta say, "There's nothing you can do that can't be done." I can't. Yes, you can. There's nothing you can do that can't be done. There's nothing you can do that can't be done. But here's how you sing it: you say it, and then you take the last word and just stretch it out. You say, "There's nothing you can do that can't be done." There's nothing you can do that can't be done. Nah, I didn't go to die <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing you can do that can't be done. There's nothing you can do, that can't be done. Hey. All right, now. Here's the second line There's nothing you can sing that can be sung. There's nothing you can sing, that can be sung. And we go higher now There's nothing you can sing that can be sung. There's nothing you can sing that can't be can sing that can't be sung. A little higher though, higher, higher. There's nothing you can say in the cap Oh, my baby, that like mini-ripperton. Okay, let's drop it low. Let's do it like a frog. There's nothing you can sing, cap Daddy, you're just doing what I did to you. Yeah, that's right. I'm doing what you did to me. Now, let's try. There's nothing you can the There's nothing you cap you doing it. Okay, listen, okay, here's the next thing. There's nothing you can say, but you can learn how to play the game. It's easy. And nothing to say but can learn how to play the game. It's easy. It's easy. It's easy. It's easy. It's easy. Ah, that's it. That's it. You're singing. Take a bow. Oh, she was wonderful. Thank you you. you going to the top. Oh she going to the top.
0: In a moment's time, especially with a small child, you can, you can just change the way they view life. You can just change. But you know what? It's not just children. Oftentimes, you know, many of you are laboring under words that were spoken over you when you were five, six, seven. It's both true in the physical realm with children. It's also true in the spiritual realm. Especially if you're new to Jesus and you are just trying to discover both his existence, number one, that he's resurrected and wasn't just some kind of iconic teacher from thousands of years ago, but he's actually, you can enter into relationship with him. But you're now a spiritual infant and you need words that embolden you and help you understand who your identity in Jesus is. You know, this... I don't play a whole lot of golf anymore, but I'm playing a little bit more thanks to a few of our members uh, now, again, this last year. And uh, there's a guy named George Archer. George died of lymphatic cancer here a number of years back. Uh, I remember him, you know, when I was at the vintage club here in Indian Wells, we would have the kind of top 50 from the Champions Tour at that time. It was called the Senior Tour then, Champions Tour now. And they would come out and they'd have this big tournament. That's where I met Arnold Palmer and met Chi Chi Rodriguez and met all these guys when I was the pro there. And uh, and I had a chance to meet him, and it was around him just a little bit. And he is a tall, gangly-looking guy, as the article describes. This is something you may not know about George Archer, who, by the way, was won numerous times on the tour and was a Masters champion. But here's what was going on behind the scenes. It says, "In school, excuse me, in cool, muted April sunlight." and the exhausted atmosphere of just completed competition, four warriors in golf clothes sat amid a group of gray-haired men in green. Fifty years ago, the closing ceremony of the Masters presented an interesting tableau. While an Augusta National muckety-muck addressed the throng, the new champ grinned a goofy grin, and the three runners-up tried and failed to look like good sports. One of them, the perfectionist, seemed... Close to tears, that blankety-blank bogey on 17, he thought, the second silver medalist, the surgeon, adopted a chin-up, impassive look, the same stoic face he wore on the golf course. Should he have gone for the par fives and two this week? No, he decided he lost for other reasons. Between these, set, between these two set the game's dark prince, inscrutable, behind his ever-present sunglasses and smoldering cigarette. They don't do that much anymore. I think John Daly was the last of that era. Um, reveries were interrupted when the defending champion, Bob Golby, held out a green jacket like a Toreador, extending a cape. Amid applause, the victor rose and rose and, and rose at six feet six, 185 pounds. The tallest ever major winner was a gangly man, spindly, his wife says, his body stuck in an unathletic shape of a high school basketball player who never gets off the bench. His swing was an inartistic whir of elbows and shoulders and knees that resulted in a violent hook. He had great hair but that face. Behind his back some of his players called him Gomer Pyle, Gomer the being the sitcom doofus played on CBS by rubber-faced actor Jim Neighbors. The new champion in a 42 XL took the mic and some words, said a few words and sat back down. What in the world was he thinking? Back then, even conventional wisdom held that winning a major was worth perhaps a million dollars in endorsement income. It proved his chances of making the Ryder Cup team improved. And if not adulation, victory in a big one at least resulted in the demand for many hundreds of autographs. But none of these pleasant events occurred for this gangly man. George William Archer, aged 29, the new master's champion was illiterate. His failure to master the most basic means of communication caused him immeasurable pain and humiliation. And when he was a kid, thoughts of suicide. There was no help from his parents, no praise, never any reading aloud. This is my son George, his father would say. He's so dumb he can't even write his own name. And he lived into that reality for years. Now, maybe in some ways, uh, his other parts of his brain began to turn on and he was able to see creative shots. And even against his six foot six stature and skinny body composition, he was able to win numerous times on the tour, primarily because he was an incredible putter. You know, it's interesting, at the close of the article, his wife says simply this, shyness, sure, Donna Archer says, but the... The undercurrent was that if he spread his tentacles too far, he'd get busted. He never came out. None of our friends knew, only our daughters and a few others knew about his illiteracy. Despite repeated efforts to retrain his brain, Archer never really learned to read or write. But in 2005, when the 65-year-old Zen master of the putter lay dying from lymphatic cancer, he gave Donna permission to reveal his secret. George died, and the George Archer Memorial Foundation for Literacy was born. Now, let me just tell you that a whole lifetime of living under words that you you can get these words from anywhere, but parents, especially parents or spiritual parents, too, can have a profound impact if they will simply employ their words. And just as true is when they are careless, unemployed, unwholesome words they can have devastating long-term consequences for the recipients. So our question to you today is number one, how do you employ your words? And number two, have you taken to yourself words that were unemployed and then established your own identity as a function of those words said in such haste? You know, it's really an ignorant man or an ignorant woman that uses their words hastily. The Bible says as we'll see like thrusting a sword. It's a graphic image it really is, but using your words are just like according to the Proverbs thrusting your sword into someone to their very most inner being and causing great and catastrophic damage throughout the entirety of their lives. Proverbs 16:27 says simply a worthless man digs up evil. With his words, they are like scorching fire. Are you like a dragon where, you you know, maybe you grew up in a way, maybe you kind of grew up out on the streets or in a tough environment and you just got used to having to defend yourself with your words and through that you got a sharp tongue, you use jokes and and little cuts, and you don't even realize it, even though you've you've been following Jesus for a long time. And now, rather than constructing, rather than seeing your words as something that can actually build a beautiful edifice in someone's life, unwittingly or unknowingly, just the way you are, this habitual way in which the patterns of your mouth work, you're deconstructing people's lives, and you're not even aware of it. See, now's the time to grab onto that and go, no, Lord, change me. Change the way I use my words. Let me use words that are now well-employed. I want to be more cautious. Proverbs 29 verse 20 simply says, do you see a man who's hasty in his words? There's more hope for a fool than for him. Someone who's hasty simply is the person that says, well, I speak what's on my mind as if that's to be trumpeted or heralded as a great quality. That's an unfiltered mouth. It's what social media gives rise to and it's devastating. How many stories do you hear today where they're a teenage young woman or a teenage young man or or older who hear these devastating indictments by peers and they go out and they kill themselves in those formative stages. I will never in all my life forget a girl that was in junior high with me that was a beautiful girl. She had blonde hair, beautiful girl. Uh, Not that blonde hair makes beauty, but she happened to have blonde hair. She was a beautiful girl and I'll never forget. It it, it shocked us she went into her room and, and she pulled the trigger and took her own life. And it was my first exposure to somebody that and what was it what what drove that well certainly it was satanic in its core but it could have been through potentially through hasty words that were merely unemployed giving her rise to her view of her own life that was well, certainly wasn't even worth living we don't know i don't know to this day what would have been causal in that do you employ your words well <clears throat> Proverbs 12, 18 says, do this, employ your words. First, there's a couplet here, and they are diametrically opposed. First, there is one who speaks rashly, again, as I alluded to, like the thrusts of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Again, healing, that's the... That's the very thing the Holy Spirit is on the earth for, to renew all things, to bring healing with these words. Lord, just let my words be employed. Everything that I say, everything that I do, let me be conscious of every word that comes out of my mouth. Lord, help us, help us. Change my heart. Remember, really our prayer too is to change my heart in that area because out of the heart the mouth speaks. Proverbs 16 verse 24 Pleasant words—they're—they're li- they're like a honeycomb. I mean, how sweet to the soul, and healing to the bones. Marilyn alluded to it yesterday—that laughter is good medicine. Usually, what's prompted by laughter, Lord, l- the Lord is not anti-laughter. I—I I, I, again, I say, think back about Jesus. You know, you don't see many movies about Jesus laughing, but there was a producer a number of years back who created the story in the life of Jesus over a number of DVDs of which we purchased. And they were Jesus high-fiving and laughing and dancing with his disciples and and celebrating, you know, when miracles occurred rather than, thou art healed. You know, I mean, why? I just don't think that's God. God created us with these emotions and... These emotions are, as we've often talked about, great servants. Very, very emotions are horrible masters. I feel this, therefore I need this. You know, that's the fallen state. But emotions that are in support of a directional intent in terms of your own life trajectory towards Jesus, they make beautiful, you know, journey companions. Our emotions are powerful. And God wants our emotions. He wants us to worship him. He wants us to to celebrate and laugh and to love and to have joy. I mean, he wants all of that dynamism in our lives. It it takes religion to suppress it and put it down in a box. It's not Jesus. Colossians 4 verse 6 says, let your speech always be with grace. Now, catch the metaphor, as though it were seasoned with salt So that you will know how you should respond to every person, to each person. So every encounter, I don't care if it's somebody who's just, I I see so many Christians that are unaware, even when they're checking out, just getting a cup of coffee, you know, it's too hot, you know, know, bite, bite, bite. It's that, you know, it's that raging, scorching fire. You're like a dragon everywhere you go. And then you come to church and then you, that's good, brother. It's so good to see you. What a great message this was, you know. You know, and then as soon as they get out, it's like scorching fire everywhere they go. It just shouldn't be. It cannot be. It cannot be. So what is this idea of salt? Well, salt really has two functions. Number one, it makes something bland exciting, right? I mean you can take, you can take some stuff that I would not eat. You put just a little bit of salt on it, you're like, oh, that actually doesn't taste bad. It's a beautiful seasoning. But it's also used to preserve food. And this is the balance that is necessary in loving words is balance. I am not of the camp that says our children all need to get a medal, all need to get a you know trophy. I mean, there is some place for excellence. Excellence should be rewarded. I I think that's thoroughly biblical. I'm not like we just have to this is not about daily affirmations where we all just sit in the, you know, look in the mirror and go, you know, you're pretty. You know, you're really nice. You know, you, you, you're, you're important. I mean, that, that, that the world has that. There are volumes upon thousands and thousands of volumes that just, you know, be nice to yourself and give yourself a break today and all. I mean, we use slogans like that as if somehow an Egg McMuffin would give you a break today. But you get the point. It's not that. There's balance. And Jesus had perfect balance. There was never an unemployed word that came out of Jesus' mouth, ever think about that sometimes it was tough oh you guys you have so little faith oh you have little faith he didn't say, I think he was just oh you guys man you have so little faith come on and yet other times so encouraging so loving you know I mean just the fact that he would choose the people that he chose the down and outs I mean the the fishermen smelling of brine I mean just you know, all this, and they, they're dirty and stuff under their nails and everything. This was not the country club crowd. And he invited them in and, and told them and gave them an identity. And, and, you know, he often changed their names. You see that over and over. I, I remember when I was in college, uh, I think I've told you this before, forgive me, but if you listen to me enough, you're going to hear a few repeated stories. And you all say, great, we'd never heard that one before. But, you know, you have. But I had this guy at school, and his name uh, was Steve. And, I mean, seriously, I told you about this, but he had these Coke bottle glasses, and I'll never forget. And he just was so introverted, and it was so painful. So, and so I said, well, I'm, and, I, and I just read it, and I'm like, well, Jesus was changing people's names, you know? And I'm like, you're no longer Steve. You're Faith Man. Faith Man. And he was kind of like, Me? Who are you talking to me? You talking to me? Remember that's how Gideon was? You know, O valiant warrior, God says. And, and Gideon's like, who you talking to? He was in there, you know, stomping on grapes. And, uh, who are you talking to? He called into him a destiny, spoke into his life, and it forever changed his life. Faith man, he never became the alpha male, but I will tell you, he was a different guy, just with a name change. It was so powerful. Just with the word, you know? And then, so one quick thing. Flattery is not encouragement. So the seasoning in people's lives, flattery doesn't work. Okay, so flattery is directed towards the other with the hopes of reciprocity back to yourself. So we flatter people, as the Bible says, to gain an advantage, okay? Encouragement is wholly directed towards the other in an attempt to construct both uh, the edifice of their lives and to give them a sense of well-being and that they're in God's will, certainly within the context of a community of faith. Okay? So think about what the Bible says about flattery. Proverbs chapter 2, verses 1 and 16, my son, if you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you... They will deliver you. Listen to my word and they will deliver you from the strange woman, from the adulteress who flatters with her words. Flatter, you can imagine the adulteress, you know, there by her door as these young, impressionable men that would be walking by or older too, but especially the young men, you know, listen to my words, they'll preserve you. Listen to my words, they'll preserve you. And then they walk by and she has a few words too, you know, hey, big fella. You know, you've been in the gym, you know, you're looking good. Why don't you come in? And of course, Proverbs 7 even talks about this, this seductive voice of flattery, you know, and, but that certainly is not to their end. That's, that is a deconstruction of that young man's life, not an employed word. Jude, same thing. There's only one chapter in Jude, verses four and verses 16. Listen to the language. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly people who turn the grace of God into licentiousness. That just means they just they were still after the fleshly things. And they denied uh, our master and Lord Jesus. These are, listen to the language, grumblers, they find fault, they follow after their own lusts, They speak arrogantly and they, what? They flatter people for the sake of gaining an advantage. That's not saltiness. Flattery is not saltiness. Flattery deconstructs. Those are not employed words. You may think they are, but what you're really doing is you're buttering somebody up because you want something from them. And I think anybody who's walked in wisdom should be able to recognize, is this person flattering me or is this an actual true down-to-earth encouragement that has merit in it, right? So, so us, you know, thirty-pound guys, and somebody says, "Oh, those muscles." Well, you know, not not really. It's probably flattery. It's probably flattery. So, how about what is encouragement? What does the Bible say about encouragement? Thessalonians five eleven. Therefore, encourage one another, and catch the language build one another up just as you are also doing. Again, that picture of construction, of edifying, of edification. Um, encourage one another. We need it. One of the things, you know, I, live stream is great and when you can't be here and you go back home, live stream, but still you got to be part of a daily, a weekly community where you have people around you who can encourage you and say, come on, hang in there. You know, you're, things are going to be okay or, or just somebody who when, you, when you're suffering or you're, you're, you've gone through great loss, someone just to sit there with you. Even if they don't say a word, they're speaking volumes just by being there with you. You need that. We need that as a community. Hebrews 10, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider. What is consider? I got to think deeply about this. I cannot just let, I cannot be unfiltered. I just say whatever comes into my mind. Well, that's just, that's not very smart. There's no wisdom in that. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. How would you do that? How would you stimulate someone to love and good deeds? You would call out in them who they are. They'll, they'll find the deeds. You don't have to say, okay, here's what you, that's what parents do. You got to go make your bed and da-da-da-da-da, you know, and I'm stimulating you to do these things. Well, that's not stimulation. What you do is stimulating someone to good love and good deeds is you are creating an identity in their head and they're like, yeah, that's, that is who I am. That's who God made me to be. And they'll, trust me, once they understand that, they'll walk into that naturally Right? If they're convinced that they are great at basketball or something, they're going to be out there on the court all the time. If you tell them, you're just, you know, this is my stupid son. He can't even, is dumb, dumb. George is dumb. Can't even write his own name. You think George is going to be the guy that can't wait to get to school and can't wait to, you know, uh, unpack learning and all the things in front of him? He's, that door's already been closed because he took that word evidently to himself. I mean, there's no question he had some issues and maybe struggled with dyslexia or something, but I will tell you that that door was closed and that, yeah, it is hard maybe later in life when he actually wanted to, you know, reshift and rechange the course of his life. He says, don't forsake the assembling together as is the habit of some, but encourage one another. And all the more, as you see the day drawing near, there's something about just coming together. I know, you know, it's like we're going to sleep in and we don't need to, we'll just watch it on live stream. I just encourage you to come, but why? Because there's just something that happens. There's a dynamism that happens when we come together and we can look and we can, can get a physical embrace and somebody can sit there. I can speak, but somebody can speak very specific words and the Lord will speak through people to speak into your life in the context of community. It's not just church on Sunday morning, but it's a small group or something that you're engaged in where people, well, like Cheers, where they know your name. And I always find that fascinating. The world is so hungry for that, aren't they? Cheers and Seinfeld and all these, friends, they're all built around, basically having one place where people come repetitiously over and over. For Cheers, it was the bar, for MASH, it was out of necessity, they were all in the you know, operating tent in you know, that little camp there in Korea. And then, of course, you know, Seinfeld was just Jerry's apartment, basically about three quarters of the stuff, Jerry's apartment. And then, and same thing with friends, just right there at the little coffee shop. And, you know, there's something God builds into us that so longs that we can come and just repeatedly come. And people, like, when you walk in the door, they go, Hey, Judy, how are you? So good to see you. As opposed to nothing. You go to Starbucks and nobody knows your name. Nobody. So when we think about the, the employment of words, by the way, Romans fourteen, same language. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Romans fourteen ninety, nineteen. Excuse me. So that now those are now we're talking about preservatives. Okay. So salt is both seasoning and that makes life great. Isn't it great just to just be encouraged by one another and gather together each week? And isn't that great? It's just fantastic. I just love it. But then there's also the preservative aspects of salt as well, and we can't overlook that. So uh, think about 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 through 4. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, notice his kingdom, this is how his kingdom operates preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Now catch this, use your words to do these things. Preach, okay? Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Part of loving words is at times saying, I'm just telling you, I know you think you're in a good place, but I'm just telling you this will be painful for you in the long run. Can you hear my words? That's a rebuke but also exhortation, you know, but also discipline. And also, so there's a balance in salt as both a preservative and a seasoning. It's both, it cannot be. If it's an isolation, it's just seasoning. That's, well, the world has that. Just tell each other there how great you are. And you go around telling each other how great you are without any truth. And as a result, even though the guy has a cavity or cancer of the soul, that you never speak to that. And he said, but you're fantastic. And then they die. I mean, what do you do? You have to have a balanced view of your words. So he says, for the time will come and they won't endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they're going to accumulate teachers for themselves in accordance with their own desires, and they will turn away from the truth and turn to myths. He said, Timothy, Paul's saying, Timothy, this is just natural human things. When you start talking to people about sin and about judgment and about some of these things, I don't want to hear that. I just want to go and just get a good word. This world's hard enough. When I go to church, I just want somebody to tell me that everything's good and my soul's fine and everything's great and how wonderful I am. I don't need, and that's why I like TV preacher, this guy or that guy. There's some great TV preachers. Don't get me wrong. There's some not so great. I'm just saying when you, you, you have to have both aspects of salt, Yes, you're created in God's image. Yes, God has an amazing plan for your life. All that's true, but, you know, there's also rebuke and reproof and teaching and training and righteousness. Paul Again, Paul says this to Timothy in his second letter as well in, ver- in chapter 3. All Scripture is inspired by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction. Who likes to be corrected? Do you have people that love you well enough where you can sit down and say, you know what, this area of your character, the way you treated that waiter, he was doing the best he could. Why did you snap at him like that? That That's not reflective of who you are and the Jesus who's in you. I mean, do we have people in our lives that would love us so much to speak preserving words that are employed with great intentionality? Some people just hate that. They don't like the correction part. They want to hear how great they are, and they don't want to hear anything. We don't like that. We call that a, you know, sometimes that's a victim mentality too. I'm the victim. I'm the victim. You can only tell me something that's going to encourage me, but don't tell me that I'm doing anything wrong. I mean, that's, we, we, we kind of go against that. We know intuitively that's not right, and we know if Jesus was here, he'd probably love us enough to speak preserving words to us. And when we don't, well, Proverbs 12, 1... It just is so simple. If you love discipline, you just love knowledge. But if you hate it, you're oh. I mean, some people thought the Bible says that. Yeah, if you hate discipline, if you hate it, you're you're just stupid. Now does that well? Those are bad words. You shouldn't you shouldn't call those words onto people. No, it's saying look, it's it. Those are that needs to be said. The word has to say that because why? We are. We're short-sighted. We're not not thinking deeply if we don't love discipline. Some would say, I'm willing to go through it, but I hate it. But I I pray all the time, Lord, help me love discipline. Help me love correction and reproof and rebuke. Innately, there's nothing in my body that says, oh, thank you, good brother, for bringing that to my attention. (laughs) I want to get to where I love it. And God, I want to be sensitive to your word to me even if it's a corrective word. So in closing, I mean, how do you employ your words? Unemployed words kill, they steal, they destroy. Oh, that sounds like Satan. Unemployed words can be a vehicle of Satan himself. Satan is merely a created being fallen. He's not a creator. He's not an infinite force. He's not omnipresent. He's not, no, He is a created being that has limited capacity, part of the angelic realm that fell, according to the Bible, along with about a third of the angels, if you read Revelation 12 to read that, which I think most theologians do, which then create the demonic realm. These are created entities. God is, they are at the absolute whim of the Creator, Jesus has absolute authority and dominion. They were completely crushed at the cross. Colossians 2 is clear. They have no authority unless we give them authority. And oftentimes we give them authority because of something that was spoken to us and we open a doorway and we believe a lie. It's as simple as that. Are there lies that you're believing that give Satan an access to your life? These are defeated created beings that are now have the judgment of christ on them and when jesus comes back they will forever be stricken from the created order and the bible says that he has prepared a place for satan and his angels that is already prepared for him they have limited limited and only be and how do you know that they're limited well even in advance of jesus they were still subject completely to god himself if you remember the story of Job. Satan came and asked for access to Job. Ask for access. They have no autonomy above God, zero. They are created and fallen. But we don't want to employ words that in any way go along with him. Do we? Can we possibly be, want, be part of his scheme? No. And so we use words for other purposes. So when we look back at Ephesians 4... Here's what we've learned. Verse 30, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Construct, use your words, employ them, and construct things in people's lives. Why? You were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also forgave you. So let's think, you know, this picture of devastation. no. Let's picture a new picture of fruit and and, and a place of wonder. You create the atmosphere in your home. You create the atmosphere most often around you. Now, you're sometimes put into caustic, toxic situations. I understand. But I will say that we can create with our words an atmosphere that we live in. How so? Well, as we begin to use our words, people can actually begin to see themselves as God sees them. That's what we try to do here. I want to give you this so that you can begin to see how God sees you. Once people realize that, they begin to realize their own worth as a result of that. And when they do, they begin to realize their value to both the community and to the world at large and to Jesus. And when that happens, we also know that they will begin to align themselves with these pictures and these ideas about themselves and they'll walk into that destiny and they'll no longer be subject to Satan's lies in their lives. And when you do that, what happens? Proverbs 12, 14, a man will be satisfied with what? With the good by the fruit of his mouth. Did you know that words can come out of your mouth and they will be satisfying? How so? It just begins to create an environment around you. When you're, when, you, when you're an encourager, not a flatterer, but an encourager and a preserver, people will begin to want to be your friend. They'll want to come to you and be around you. You'll, you'll begin to get calls. You'll begin to and you'll say, wow, I just have this incredible number of friends because you are someone who, and I don't care if you're an introvert, an extrovert, or who you are. If you employ your words to always be thinking about construction in other people's lives, you will be, I'm just telling you, you'll just be so satisfied with life. Because life, in the end, is very much about relationships, not about money, is it? it, it, it just not. And everybody tells us that. And if you don't have money, you do, the only people that think that money satisfies is people that don't have it. It's just true. I'm thankful that I have provision. Don't get me wrong. But it certainly is not an ultimate satisfier. So here's what we're going to do. I want, we're going to listen to this. We're going to worship. Really, I want you to think about these, this song. This Lauren Daigle song is so good. What does God say about you? And then I'm going to pray, and I think I really believe. In fact, you know what? Redirect, stop, back up. I want to do this now. I want to do this now. I just want you to close your eyes. I want you to ask the Lord. And again, uh, Jamie and Donna and Ashley, the Gates' daughter, and and her husband John is here. And something they have really, I have really opened my eyes to this this idea of the simplicity of asking Jesus to help us and give us our own identity, not the world, okay? So I'm going to stop here for a second. Here's what I'm going to pray. Just close your eyes. I'm going to pray right now. I'm say, Lord Jesus, I'm asking you to reveal to all of us our identity that you gave us. Who do you see us as? How have you created us? And just listen to the voice of Jesus. Jesus, I'm asking you to speak, either form a picture or words in, in, in our minds to who you created us to be, and they're uniquely different in every situation. Lord, would you do that? Would you speak to us? And then simply ask the Lord, well, that's not what I've believed and that's not what, that is very different than what I've thought about myself. I thought of myself as incapable and, boy, what you just called on me reeks of capability, not incapability, Lord. So just ask the Lord to say, Father, I'm sorry. Jesus, I'm sorry that I've lived into this lie. I took this on either maybe through a parent who spoke this over my life or someone who spoke this over my life. Lord, I'm just asking you to... Forgive me, and I want to live into my identity of who you call me to be. Who do you say that I am? Amen. So here, look, this week, maybe immediately some of you have already, God's already given you some pictures in your mind of who you are, not who somebody else said you were, or your parents or even this church, Lord, who you, who you are. And then as a result of that, maybe you didn't get that, but I would say keep asking the Lord. Just ask Jesus this week. Just stop at every moment. Maybe you're in the car. You're at a stoplight. Just begin, ask over and over, Jesus, who do you say that I am? Why did you create me? You, you created me. You wove me together, the Bible says, in my mother's womb. And now we, now we understand the genetic code and DNA. It looks like fabric. It really does. I mean, our whole genetic code that's been passed down is very unique. It's unbelievable that none of us are the same, billions of human beings, and I'm so uniquely and beautifully fashioned. So you have to have a purpose for me. It's not about religion. You have a purpose for me. Now show me who I am, Lord. I'm asking you, give me an identity that's separate and distinct from maybe years, maybe 50 years, maybe George Archer, 50, 60 years. No, I'm not going to do that anymore. Let Lauren Daigle minister to you in this, and then I'll close this in prayer.